All right, so I'm really excited because uh, today Christ is coming back. Well, I mean, in, in our study through the Olivet Discourse, we're getting to the return of Christ. That's, that, I don't know what you, what you thought I meant, but uh, that's what I meant. Uh, but no, we're, we're continuing this study through the Olivet Discourse, which, uh, of course, is what Jesus said about the end times. And last week, we dedicated the whole time to a Q&A, and we touched on a lot of different issues. But since it's been a couple of weeks since we were in the flow of thought here of the Olivet Discourse, I thought I would just kind of take a moment to review. And I always want to mention for those that are either live streaming, we want to welcome you, but for those that are maybe watching the video recorded later, that the book that we're using for this study, What Lies Ahead, is available online at the Not By Works bookstore, but it's also available uh, at the back table. So if you're here today and have not gotten one of those, you can pick one up uh, from there. So as we kind of go through this study, uh, just to re review a little bit, these, this is the teaching that Jesus gave from the top of the Mount of Olives during the final week of his life on Wednesday night. And if you remember Thursday, uh, sometimes in the traditional uh, Orthodox churches, you call that Maundy Thursday, uh, was when he uh, talked to the disciples in the upper room and then uh, prayed in the garden, was betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, laid in the tomb by Friday. So this all takes place the day before all of the passion events of Thursday, Friday through Sunday. Uh, it takes place on Wednesday. It was 33 AD, April the 1st, and the disciples were curious about uh, when the kingdom was going to come. When, when would Christ's kingdom be inaugurated? And when would they be freed from uh, bondage to Rome and the Roman tyranny and, and finally usher in this long-awaited messianic kingdom that had been promised going all the way back, as we showed 18 sessions ago in our beginnings of this series before we got to the Olivet Discourse, Way back in Genesis, even, it was hinted at, and of course, with Abraham in Genesis 12, the promise was made, and then it was clarified through uh, some uh, subsequent unconditional covenants, like the New Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the Land Covenant, and so forth. So they've been waiting for this for, uh, you know, a thousand, over a thousand years, two thousand years, if you go all the way back to Abraham. So... They thought that the Messiah had come, he had announced the kingdom was at hand, he had taught extensively about the kingdom throughout his three and a half year ministry, and they thought that this was it. He was riding into Jerusalem and he was going to inaugurate the kingdom. But what they had missed, uh, even though it was plainly revealed in the Old Testament and prophesied, and even though Jesus himself had increasingly in his three and a half year ministry made it more and more plain, uh, they had missed the fact that he had to suffer before he could reign. And so he had to go to the cross before he could wear the crown. And, and so uh, they are growing concerned as they see things heating up. You remember he had that confrontation in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He issues that very stern rebuke in Matthew 23 to the, the representatives of the nation of Israel, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And... And so the disciples are starting to kind of put the pieces together and realize something's up. And so they ask Jesus, well, then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And remember, the end of the age meant the end of the church age, the present age in which they were in, an age of Gentile domination, 
times of the Gentiles. And uh, Daniel talked about how Israel would be under Gentile domination until ultimately the, the final kingdom comes. You know, when, when that stone not made from hands crushes the revived Roman Empire, that's Christ's kingdom. So they wanted to know when is that going to happen. It was, it was explicitly a question about timing. And so here we are now 2,000 years later, and obviously for 2,000 years the church has been asking a similar question. When? When are you going to come back? When will the kingdom come? When will the prophecies of Scripture be fulfilled? And we've talked often about how uh, you know, roughly 16% of biblical prophecy is unfulfilled. I was talking to a friend of mine this week about that, and he, he's actually very detailed and analytical, and he had gone back, and he, based on his reckoning, he thinks it's more than 16%. He says it's closer to 20%. Uh, you know, you got massive sections of the Old Testament where multiple chapters deal with the end times, the millennial phase of the kingdom, or the eternal state, or particularly the wrath of God and the judgment of the tribulations and of the tribulation period. So... But certainly it's a significant portion of Scripture, 16%. And, uh, and so today we ask some of the same questions. Now, as we've taught previously in this Sunday morning series, there's a clear distinction in God's Word between the rapture, which is a rescue for the church and meant to bring blessing and keep the church from having to go through the final outpouring of God's wrath, and the second coming. And Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is not dealing with the rapture. There's nothing in the Olivet Discourse that has anything to do with the church. The church was not even on the radar. It had not been unveiled in God's plan of the ages yet. This was still all about Israel. And the tribulation, in fact, is that 70th week of Daniel, the, the final uh, you know, seven years of Daniel's 490-year plan that we've uh, talked a lot about. And so... In answering their question, which was, when will the kingdom come? Jesus fast forward to that final seven years. And if you haven't watched the, uh, the 490 year plan video that was part of this series back somewhere in the first 18 sessions, go back and watch it because Daniel, God's, God's word through Daniel, reveals a 490 year plan for the nation of Israel. The first 483 of that have already been fulfilled, in fact, been fulfilled to the day, as you see there in that chart. But the final seven years have not. That's why there's a question mark above it. We don't know when it's going to uh, start. But we're living in this inter-Advent age, the, the church age, which was a mystery. And so in order for Jesus to answer the question, when will the kingdom start, he has to fast forward to this final seven-year period. As we've uh, shown elsewhere, in what we're dealing with in the Olivet Discourse is this seven-year period that that I just showed you, that Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, those things. Um, and in order for him to, for Jesus to, you know, answer their question, and you see the down arrow there on the right of the screen, that's when he's coming back. He's got to give them all of the signs and things that will take place during this seven years. So as you read through the Olivet Discourse, and we've kind of gotten through the first, uh, uh, let's see, 20 from verse 1 all the way to verse uh, 24, no, 28, uh, he's answered the question explicitly. He's given them sign after sign after sign. Now, we've talked about 
how we, I kind of outlined it for you. Um, let me get ahead here to that chart. Uh, this is the chart I'm looking for. As you see on the screen there, I've overlaid for during that seven-year period an outline of the Olivet Discourse from both Matthew, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so the, the, the first 14 verses of Matthew, which is what we're using as our central text in this study, Jesus gives general signs of the whole seven years. You know, when you see many antichrists coming, well, what did John say? One antichrist is coming, but even now many antichrists have come. When you see an uptick in deception, when you see um, nation against nation and earthquakes and all of those things, you know that it's getting near. These are the beginnings of birth pangs. Back in verse uh, 8, the birth pangs in the Old Testament is a unique metaphor that the Bible uses to refer to the tribulation period specifically. So even though we see similar activities happening today in the church age, you know, similarity does not mean equate, right? So there are earthquakes today. In fact, there's an uptick in earthquakes. There are wars, but there's been wars for since time began. Uh, there are uh, false Christs. John told us that. But that doesn't mean this is referring to that. We don't take current events and use it to interpret Scripture. We take Scripture and use it to interpret current events. So people often get confused about the tribulation I mean, about the Olivet Discourse. And because, you know, obviously we have the same question, when, Christ, when are you coming back? Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We want to, to know the signs. But according to Scripture, the rapture is a signless event. There's nothing that's going to happen before the rapture. So the best we can do is take passages like, you know, 1 John 2 and 1 John 4, where we're told that, you know, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work here, and we can extrapolate that from 2 Timothy 3.13, that things are getting worse and worse, and from other Pauline passages where he says there's going to be a great falling away in the church. We certainly see that happening. We can sort of connect the dots for the setting of the stage of the rapture, and we can say, well, it sure looks like it's going to be soon, but we cannot pinpoint a day, nor can we guarantee with any certainty that it's going to happen even in our lifetime. Because the stage is being set, but we don't know when the curtain is going to rise. But when it comes to the second coming, we do know precisely when it's going to happen. It's going to happen at the end of the tribulation with the battle of, God, battle of Armageddon and the bold judgments being poured out. And the book of Revelation makes that very clear. So uh, don't make the mistake that many do of reading into these signs that Jesus is giving as if somehow they relate to the rapture. They do not. They relate to the birth pangs, the time of Jacob's trouble. Then we looked at, in the next section there, from verse in Matthew's account anyway, from verses 15 to 26, specific, more detailed signs as we get closer to his return. Specifically, the abomination of desolation. And that's what happens at the midpoint. On this particular chart, you see just a dotted line halfway between, right in the middle of the seven years. And it's, it, that's, when the Olive, that's when the abomination of desolation is going to happen. So let me put this chart up and you can see it labeled there. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, Jesus uh, refers to Daniel as the one who told us about this prophecy. And it is, according to Daniel, a time when the future Antichrist will desecrate the temple, set himself <coughs> up as God, break his treaty with Israel, and demand that everybody worship him as God. 
And so it's a key pivotal moment. And as we read in our study where we left off, uh, when Jesus says, when you see that, head for the hills. Head for the hills. It's going to be soon. And so today we're going to pick up with verse 29. I know it says 27 on my chart there, but we got all the way through verse 28 last time. So let's pick up with verse 29, and this is the signs that immediately accompany Christ's return. And again, this is His return all the way to the earth to take the throne and rule the world in bodily form, not His return in the clouds to rescue the church uh, from this present evil age. So we'll pick it up here in verse... Let's see, 27. I'm sorry, 29. So immediately after the tribulation of those days, what tribulation? The ones that all the prophets talked about, the ones that you know Paul talked about, obviously the book of Revelation, Daniel, the ones that Jesus has just been describing in the preceding verses. What will be the sign of your coming? Well, it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. And um, I want to point out again, I know I've talked about this, but it's been a couple of weeks since we were in the text. Uh, people often uh, question how, why would Jesus be giving these signs to a generation that he knew would not be on the earth when they happened? Because it was, he was talking 2,000 years ago, and of course the tribulation still hasn't happened yet. So they say, well, what's the relevance? Well, that's a, almost a silly question with all respect to people who ask it because prophecy by its very nature is given to a generation but not fulfilled until later. I mean, every prophecy in Scripture, uh, at least Messianic, was given well in advance of the coming of Messiah at his first advent and in and, and, and well advance of his second advent. So he's answering the question locally because they are the ones that asked him, but he's speaking prophetically of to the nation of Israel as a whole, and the believing disciples at that time represented believing Israel, and he wanted to let them know. He had said <clears throat> on a contrary level <clears throat> before, <clears throat> excuse me, before the Olivet Discourse, he had said to the, the unbelieving leaders in chapter 23, uh, you will not see me again. You know, until you respond in faith, until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in fulfillment of Psalm 118. And so he had told the unbelieving leaders, you know, uh, how long, how, how long, often I wanted to gather you under my wings, uh, and, and as a chicken gathers her, a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. So guess what? I, I'm going away. You're not going to see me. And the next time you see me, it will be when you as a nation believe in me and then call on me to rescue you and bring you into the kingdom. Uh, so negatively, that's what he told them. But to the believing representatives in Israel, namely the disciples, he says, okay, well, you want to know when I'm coming? Here's, what, here's what, how it's going to go down. Here, here's how it's going to happen. So hypothetically, it, the disciples did not know, and had we been alive at that time, nor would we have known, that it was going to be 2,000 years and possibly longer. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know his timetable. So certainly it could have happened in their lifetime, but the fact that it didn't does in no way uh, impugns the prophecy. Prophecies by their nature are given to one generation and fulfilled often in another. Does that make sense? 
Any question about that? It's very important. I, the reason I bring that up a lot is because one of the biggest criticisms against you know our perspective in, from a literal, grammatical, historical outlook on the Bible is that, and we're going to get to this probably not today, but possibly, but certainly by next week, is when Jesus makes that famous statement in verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away. And they misunderstand the meaning of that passage and say that it, this must have happened. And that's and since we don't see anything remotely resembling what he described, they then spiritualize all of the events, like the ones we're about to look at that we see on the screen right here. A lot of people suggest that that already happened. And they, you say, well, how, how could it possibly happen? The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, they say, oh, well, it was symbolic. It was a, it was a, that was a metaphor. And when, when Jerusalem fell and, and the Roman general uh, Titus ransacked the city and burned the city, that the, the embers you know, billowing up above Jerusalem represent the, the, the stars falling from heaven and the, and, and the dark clouds of smoke covering the sun and moonlight represented the darkness over Jerusalem. That's not at all what Jesus says here, and, and, and he's talking globally here. And we correlate this, as I've shown you in, in a previous chart, with the book of Revelation and how it describes the same thing globally. Um, so we'll get to this generation uh, and I uh, also have a very detailed, lengthy journal article that I published on this issue that shows unequivocally that it's not, he was not suggesting that the disciples would see these things. Uh, they could have from their perspective, but as time went on, they died, and next generation came along, and today uh, the church has been uh, implemented, implemented. Uh, and uh, we are now the bride of Christ, and we are God's focal point on the earth. We have a job to do. Remember, I talked about five purposes for the church and five purposes for the Israel, and they're different. We have different purposes. But someday God's going to re rescue us and return his focus back to Israel, and then we will see these signs that Jesus has been talking about come forth. So, Again, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These things will take place at the moment Christ is returning. Uh, and we see the similar description in Revelation 16 in relation to the final bold judgments, particularly the fifth, sixth, and seventh bold judgments, where the earth is shaken with the greatest earthquake ever, great thunderings and lightnings. Um, and uh, whenever God intervenes in the affair, affairs of man, it often comes with great uh, thunderings and, and great geographic Im implications. The earth groans in a sense. And we're going to see that today in our study through Hebrews on another momentous event when God gave the law, which was a key moment in God's plan of the ages on Mount Sinai. So then when you see these cosmic signs that he just described, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. See how this is not just, you know, local? I mean, it, would, it completely distorts Jesus' teaching. He doesn't say all the tribes around Jerusalem, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, People love to speculate, and there's been lots of speculation on the sign of the Son of Man. It is a definite article there. What is it, right? 
Well, obviously, Jesus didn't want us to know. Um, it, it could be that the he's referring back to what he just said and that all these cosmic signs are the sign. You know, they will, in other words, it would be paraphrased, you know, immediately after those days, you'll see all these cosmic signs which will indicate that the Son of Man is about to appear, is the idea. Uh, a lot of people have suggested it's going to be a, a cross. Um, but I think the best answer, and you, and you have to hold it with, with a great degree of uh, humility because we don't, it doesn't describe what it is, is just that it's referring to, the, the, again, those cosmic signs. Anytime God appears, you see like the Shekinah glory, the bright lights, and you see that at the birth of Christ as well, the great light shone around them. So it just seems like the sign that he's referring to is, is implicit within the description of his, uh, of his coming. So the clouds, the light, the, the shining, and those types of things. Uh, but regardless of what the sign is, his return will be unmistakable. It will be unmistakable. We looked last time in verse 28 at where he says, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. Uh, in other words, you, you won't have to wonder or question. If, you, if you're wondering, was that the return of Christ? It wasn't. If you have to even ask the question, it wasn't. Um, he had said, we looked at this, uh, therefore if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, verse 26, or look, he's out in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Because as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, we've never seen lightning that encompasses the globe. And so this is a good reminder for us as well. It's very easy, and we all are prone to do this, to look at current events and then take them and plop them in Scripture somewhere and say, this is that. And it often, there's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, we saw that with a lot of the speculative teaching from people about blood moons and Shemitahs and all kinds of other stuff. And, um, but that's not, that's not in connection to the return of Christ. When it happens, the whole world will know. The whole world will know. Um, so the... Wherever the carcass is there, the eagles will be gathered. That's just sort of a, a metaphor or a saying that, you know, if you're driving down the highway and you see the vultures, which is another way to translate that word eagles, the vultures circling, you know there's somewhere below, there's a dead animal, right? And, uh, and so this, it's, it's an obvious sign. And in the same way, the return of Christ will be obvious. And you know who else it will be obvious to? is the believing nation of Israel. Because the next verse, Jesus says, and this again is Jesus talking here in the Olivet Discourse, He will send His angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together His elect, that's Israel, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, again, here's where people make mistakes in their interpretation because they see the word trumpet, and they automatically connect it with other references to trumpets. But there are tons of trumpets in Scripture. Trumpet is a very common tool in Jewish culture and a very common thing that we see in conjunction with God speaking from heaven to earth. We're going to see trumpets in Mount Sinai today that we look at in the Hebrews. We saw trumpets around, Mount, uh, around Jericho when they did, the Battle of Jericho took place. We see judgments in the book of 
Revelation was announced by seven trumpets, right? And then, of course, the rapture is announced with a trumpet. So lots of trumpets. So just because it's the word trumpet, you'd be silly to just connect the dots and say, oh, see, in 1 Thessalonians 4, there's a trumpet at the rapture. There's a trumpet here. It must be the same event. That's just poor uh, theological synthesis. Um, we, we see a lot of errors of this kind in uh, Bible uh, study methods. I think one of the biggest, easiest areas for us to make mistakes when interpreting Scripture is when it gets to the cross-referencing point. You know what I mean by cross-referencing? So if you have a good study Bible, you'll notice uh, in the center column, there are a bunch of references in, in each page, right? And as you're reading the Bible, there'll be a little, foot, what looks like a footnote, except it's a letter, and you go to the center column, sometimes they're below, but you go to the center column and you read it, and it's got a bunch of references, cross-referencing what that verse says to somewhere else in Scripture. You follow me? That's what we call cross-referencing, or you know, I call it theological synthesis. You're synthesizing across different books of the Bible and different biblical authors. Um, but the thing we need to understand is those cross-references are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were added by men who are you know, building a theological case and writing a study Bible, right? So I guarantee you the cross-references in the Benny Hinn study Bible are going to look a lot different from the ones in the Charles Ryrie study Bible, right? So um, when we connect verses, you know, we are prone to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, a lot of more charismatic teachers, anytime they see fire, they assume it's the Holy Spirit. I had a student one time in a hermeneutics class who did a, uh, a lesson, of an assignment that was on Acts uh, 20, uh, what is it, 27, I think, anyway, where Paul is shipwrecked on the island of Malta, right? And and in his interpretation, he suggest, this student suggested while they were warming their hands by the fire there, remember that when they got off the shipwreck and they built the fire and they're warming their hands? Which, by the way, you know what? Luke meant when he said they were warming their hands by the fire. They were their hands. Exactly, they were warming their hands by the fire. But anyway, uh, this student uh, connected the fire there with the cloven tongues of fire in Acts 2 and said, oh, that represents the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't. You can't just arbitrarily assign symbolic meaning to some part of a historical narrative. And people love to do that. And that was a, a bad cross-reference. So that student's study Bible, so to speak, they would, when you get to Acts 27, I think it is, or 28, they would say, you know, see Acts 2. Well, no, that's, that's bad. There's no connection, right? So people do the same thing with the word trumpet here. And the burden of proof is on them to prove that Jesus meant that this trumpet was the same as the trumpet in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. And there's no indication that's the case. In fact, there's every indication it was. And as we've demonstrated very clearly through comparing Scripture to Scripture, the church is a time of rescue. It's only for the, I mean, the rapture is a time of rescue. It's only for the church. It's only for believers. It doesn't, Christ doesn't come all the way to the earth. There's no mention to unbelievers. There's no judgment or punishment. There's only reward, all, all of those things. So you gotta, you gotta be careful about uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. So clearly at this time, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the nation of Israel will finally be brought into their land. And Israel today, in our day, even though they were reconstituted as a nation on May 15, 1948, that 
was not a fulfillment of biblical prophecy in my view because the, there's no prophecy that is fulfilled before the rapture. That was quite clearly a setting of the stage because we know if Israel is going to be in the land uh, at the time that Christ returns to establish his kingdom, it follows there's got to be an Israel on the map. And there was no Israel on the map for some 1,500 years or so, uh, or 1,800 years. So, so clearly that should get our attention. It's an exciting moment. But it wasn't the fulfillment of prophecy. You see a lot of people also later on in the Olivet Discourse, when we talk about the generation passage in verse 34, we're going to also talk about the fig tree in verse 32, which is nothing more than an analogy. It's not a prophecy. It's just an analogy. We were uh, at the park recently with Zoe, and, and I noticed one of the trees was uh, budding. And I said, ah, oh, the trees are budding. Summer must be near. You know, just making an observation. And Jesus is going to say the same thing uh, in our next section that we're going to get to when he says, hey, so learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see it budding, you know summer's near. When you see all these signs I just revealed, you know my return is near. That's it. It wasn't a prophecy. It was an analogy. And yet a lot of people said, oh, 1948, that was the budding of the fig tree when Israel became a nation. That fulfilled that prophecy. A, it's not a prophecy, and B, it didn't fulfill it. Um, so, uh, so Israel is not in the land in belief today, but they will be regathered in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So we could look at, for example, Deuteronomy 30, when the prophecy is, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Jesus is speaking in the Olive Discourse of the fulfillment of that promise. Or Isaiah 27, so shall it be in that day, that great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. That's a reference to the ultimate return of Israel to the land. Right? So any questions about this, these, these verses here, 29 to 31, as we see Christ talk about, okay, you know, I've given you some general signs, I've given you some specific signs. Now here's what it's going to look like when it happens. It'll be unmistakable, cosmic signs globally, people physically transported supernaturally, the Jews, from wherever they are into the land, having believed the gospel. And then, then, then I'm going to come back. Yeah? Um, just your thoughts on comparing 24, 31, and 25, 31. Yeah, when the Son of Man comes in all of His glory. Yeah. So, obviously, as we go through this, we'll get to chapter 25 and the virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats, but they're, ex they're describing the same event. So there, there, there's two second coming references that Jesus makes in the Olivet Discourse, 24.31 and 25.31. Yeah. Can I read 25.31? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And, of course, as you read on through, uh, those on his right enter the kingdom, those on his left, eternal punishment. Exactly. So if you look at our chart, what uh, Pastor John just read and what we read in chapter 24 is referring to the second coming of Christ, which is described in detail in Revelation 19. And when he comes back, there are going to be two 
groups of people alive on the earth that physically survived the devastation of the tribulation. I mean, there will be unbelievable death and destruction during the seven years. But when all is said and done, Christ comes back, battle of Armageddon, there will be survivors, right? Some of them will be believers. Some of them will be unbelievers. Same categories that exist throughout time, right? Everyone on earth is either a believer or an unbeliever. At that time, when he comes to establish his kingdom, as John read, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, then will he sit on his throne. Then, by the way, not now. He's not on the throne now. He's on a throne now, but not the throne now. The long-awaited throne that was promised to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, and reiterated again and again throughout the Old Testament, and the one that Jesus talked about often, and the one that his disciples wanted to sit on his right and his left, and they were going to sit on 12 thrones with him on his throne. That throne is not going to happen until he comes back. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of his glory. I don't know how people miss that, but Jesus clearly wasn't on it at that time because he was, he was speaking and he was talking in the future tense. But anyway, when he does, he's going to then separate people and he uses the metaphor of sheep and goats. And this is sometimes referred to as the judgment of the nations. Um, the judgment of Israel, I take it, is in the preceding section, Parable of the Talents, and the believing Israel has been supernaturally regathered, physically transported, you know, kind of like a Star Trek thing, into the land, as promised them. But that leaves all the Gentiles, all the nations, right? And they're going to be some believers, some unbelievers. To the unbelievers, he will say, Depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And to the believers, he will say, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. So at the start of the kingdom, which happened 75 days later, according to Daniel 12, the official commencement kickoff party, you know, just this, there's this massive uh, uh, wedding feast that takes place. Um, when that happens, the only people on earth will be believing Jews in their physical bodies and believing uh, Gentiles in their physical bodies. The church, Old Testament saints, people that have already died or been raptured will still be in the kingdom, but will be in our glorified bodies uh, serving different roles. For example, the church is going to be ruling and reigning with Christ and governing and so forth. So as we've talked about, when the kingdom starts, there won't be any unbelievers on the earth. But over time, as the earth is repopulated, as people have children, those children will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, and they will need to be saved by believing the gospel. And some will and some won't. And so as you go through a thousand years, uh, my uh, dad and I were dialoguing by email, not this past week, but the previous week. And uh, he's done some calculations. He's kind of a detailed person. And uh, he figured based on today's population of the earth, if you make some assumptions, for example, if you make an assumption of how many people are believers and will be raptured, and that gives you a starting point at the start of the tribulation of how many people are left, left behind on earth. And then you read through the book of Revelation and all that happens during the tribulation and you see the number of times it talks about death. And for one point, one third of the population is killed. After that, another one half. And so you start doing the calculations and you can come up with a reasonable estimate of people on the earth. Then you can make an assumption again. Let's assume so many of them are believers and so many aren't. Anyway, by making some assumptions, you can come up with a starting point 
of people in their physical bodies at the beginning of the millennium. And I don't remember what number he used, but starting there and then assuming a, an accelerated rate of growth and longevity of life. Remember, when Christ is on the throne ruling with a rod of iron, there's not going to be accidental death diseases and things like that are going to be more kept in check. Isaiah tells us that if someone dies at the age of 100, that would be considered dying like an infant. Okay, So the Bible is coming full circle to this pre-fall state. And as you remember, in the early days of creation, people lived to be seven, eight, nine hundred 900 years old. So we're going to see a return to that. But anyway, taking all those factors into account, the number he came up with of people alive at the end of the millennium on earth in physical bodies is 20 billion. I mean, you think about a thousand years is a long time. I mean, where were we? How many people were on the earth a thousand years ago today? Not anywhere near 7.5 billion. And that's during the curse of sin and, and, and when there's all kinds of problems and issues. So that's pure speculation, of course, but it certainly makes sense. So, but it's, and that to me, by the way, is the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus gives parables about the kingdom, one of which is it's going to start very small, but it's going to develop into this massive tree. And I think that's a reference to how when the kingdom comes, it's going to be a pretty small group after the devastation of the wrath of God. But as time goes on, over a thousand years, which again, that's a long time, uh, you'll see this massive kingdom with Christ on the throne. So... Uh, Anyway, good point that in the Olivet Discourse, we actually have two times when Jesus specifically refers to the moment he returns. One is in answer to the direct question at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse that we just read, where he gives the signs and he says, and here's what it's going to look like. Then he's going to go on and give a bunch of uh, practical admonition and encouragement and sort of the so what question. Now that I've told you what the sign of the coming is and when the end of the age will be, you need to be ready. And then in chapter 25, he's going to go back and give even more encouragement about being ready and talk about Israel's one final chance to receive the kingdom, the peril of the talents, and what it's going to look like when the millennium starts. It's a lot of material. I feel like I'm speaking, but I hope I, what I'm saying is making sense. Um, I see some puzzled looks, but that's not uncommon. <laughs> so, any questions? We got about five minutes left. Yeah, Gary. Uh, gathering from the four winds. Mm -hmm. That's the, the nation of Israel pulled back in together, right? Into the land physically. And where does that happen? Again? At the second coming. At the second mm -hmm. coming. So at yeah. the beginning of that seventy-five day period before Correct. the millennial kingdom. Correct. And Daniel tells us, you know, there's this delay. It, uh, we don't know exactly the purpose, but presumably there's going to be so much devastation on the earth that it's going to take time to clean up. I mean, the blood is going to be as high as a horse's bridle in some of the streets, the Bible tells us. So it's, it's a massive destruction. It's the, it's the climax of this cosmic struggle that I've taught so much about through the years between God and Satan that is ratcheting up and ratcheting up, and it's a it's a, a battle in the unseen realm. I was at a meeting yesterday, and the pastor gave a devotional, or no, Friday, and uh, it was he, he was talking about the spiritual warfare and uh, from 2 Corinthians 10 and how our weapons are not physical. I mean, we need physical weapons, right? 
um, because we live in a physical world. But ultimately, it's a spiritual battle. And so there's the devastation and the manifestations of this of these seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments and the wrath of Satan also being poured out are going to be pretty intense. So, But yeah, that gathering happens right at the second coming. Uh, yeah. So at the beginning of the millennium, you have all the believers that come back with Christ in their glorified bodies. Mm -hmm. Then you have people in their physical bodies who are all believers. Correct. But all the Jews are in Israel. Correct. And then all the Gentiles are throughout the Throughout the, rest the world, of the earth, mm -hmm. but no Jews in the rest of the earth. They're all in Israel. At first, yeah, yeah. I mean, they can, you know, they're. I don't know why they would, but theoretically, they will over the thousand years could populate and move and whatever. But, uh, but yeah, this is their homeland. And by the way, the geographic boundaries. We're going to eventually get into that down the road. It's the last couple of chapters in the book uh, of Israel are expanded greatly. The Temple Mount is expanded greatly. And that's because it's going to be, it's going to finally reach, and they're going to finally inhabit the full extent of the land that was promised to them. They've had the rights to it, Joshua tells us, but they've never actually inhabited all of it. And, but then people who are born during that time have to get saved as well? Absolutely, yep. And they'll do that because Christ is right there? And... Yeah, they'll do that the same way anyone ever gets saved, by grace through faith. The difference will be... The evangelistic enterprise will be instead of pointing people back to the cross and saying, you know, trust in this historic figure, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins, we will point to the throne and we'll say, trust in that guy. He will save you. He's the only one who can save you, the one that gave the State of the World address last night on TV. Remember him? His name's Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you'll place your faith in him, he can give you eternal life. So, yeah, people will still need to be saved, and some will and some won't, because Revelation tells us that by the end of that thousand years, there is a great contingent of unbelievers who do one final battle when Satan is let out of prison. Remember, Satan, when Christ comes back, is, is put in prison for that thousand years. Doesn't mean he's completely unable to influence, uh, you know, the demons and Satan don't get cast into the everlasting lake of fire until the end of the you know millennium. So they're still around, and Satan, but Satan is somewhat held in check. But at the end of the millennium, he's let free, and there's one final battle, and he has a number of unbelievers who never did get saved that he kind of rallies the troops, and then they're all uh, cast into the fire. And then I saw a hand over here. Well, I was just noticing the, the seal that goes on Satan when he's bound for a thousand years and just thinking about how we're sealed for heaven and wondering if, if you think that's a good cross-reference to make. Um, since he's sealed for, for hell, um, is that also like, for example, in 2 Corinthians one we're sealed. Yep, and Ephesians 1. Yeah, so absolutely it's a legitimate cross-reference because a seal means permanence. So we, we have a hard time with the concept of permanence because we live in such a temporary world, you know, in a disposable world. But a seal culturally and in theological terms is permanent. So as you said in 1 Corinthians, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That means permanent. And that's a, one of the key passages on, uh, you know, eternal uh, security. Uh, my grandfather, who was a preacher, I remember one time when I was just a boy, 
and we were visiting their uh, retirement home where he and my grandmother lived, he, he, gave, he wanted to, t- to talk to me about eternal security and wanted to give me an illustration. So he went into the little kitchen, little tiny kitchen in their little retirement apartment, and he got out three Tupperware bowls. And he talked about how the Holy Spirit is, or I guess it was just two, he put, put the smaller one, nested it inside the bigger one, and said, this is the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to put a seal over it, and he sealed it t- tight. And he said, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to be with you forever. Paul says, you're sealed. So if you could ever then go to hell, and, and represented by the whole bowl with the smaller one representing the Holy Spirit inside it, what does that mean? And he was painting a vivid picture that that would mean the Holy Spirit would have to go to hell, right? And I've always remembered that illustration. So, uh, so yeah, no, I think that's, that's in the, to the extent that it's using the same term, and that term has a meaning, it's, a, it's good that it comes to mind. Okay, well, let's uh, take a break now, and we'll continue on with our service at 10. If those of you that are live streaming, the live stream of the service will start at 10.30. We only live stream the message, but uh, you can rejoin us online at 10.30.